We're coming to the, uh, the third message and of five on the topic of the five points of the Reformation. I had a, a grip of fear this morning. I said, I, wait a minute, did I skip a message? Because I, I realized that I put Christ and the gospel into one, which easily could have been broken into two last Sunday evening. But we come this morning to the topic of worship. In college, I had a really wonderful professor who tried to teach me Greek. He, didn't, he did a great job. I, I wasn't a good student. He was actually teaching me English before I could learn Greek. And I learned Greek better, I think really pretty decent in seminary. Um, but he, uh, boy, he just knocked off a lot of rough edges. He, in his um, teaching, would oftentimes refer to the statement that it was almost impossible. He was a student of the New Testament. His uh, background was in Hellenistics and, and the whole Greek culture. And he said it was basically impossible for us in our day and age to put our feet in the shoes of a first century Jew, to understand their mindset And I think about that phrase, and I think to some degree it also applies to understanding what it must have been like to be a 16th century Roman Catholic, to understand what it was like to to, um, be a follower of the Pope and to worship in that day. Worship was something that the priests did, and not you. It's something that those people at the front accomplished in the church and not something that you entered into. You, as it were, as we would put it, you went along for the ride. And as we're going to see tonight, you, the the person in the pew, and even when we say that, you weren't in a pew. When you went to the church, for the most part, you stood the whole time, which is, again, very different than our context. You were not considered the church. The church was the hierarchy. The church was the pope and the cardinals and the bishops and the priests, you see. You would listen during worship and and try to understand and gain something out of the service as everything flowed up to participating in the Mass. You probably would be able to listen for some Latin phrases that you would pick up along the way, but you didn't speak Latin, so you were kind of in the dark for, for the most part. But during the Mass, you would listen for those words that would stand out. Hoc est pacum. This is my body. And you knew that is when the miracle took place. That's when the bread became the flesh of Jesus. That's when the wine became his blood. The miracle took place by the hand of your priest. And he then presented these gifts unto you. By the way, hoc est pacum is the root from which we get hocus pocus. The idea of magic, something has taken place. No kidding. So we see that worship and the church were very, very different prior to the Protestant Reformation. In fact, we can go back to the year 1215 and see two very pivotal actions that would eventually fork in the road in the 16th century. In 1215, the great Magna Carta was signed, which limited the power of the king. It was an imperfect document. It wasn't evenly applied, but it still was a step forward in the pursuit of freedom. The same year, 1215, the pope declared that transubstantiation 
was the view of the Roman Catholic Church regarding communion. Up until that time, there had been healthy and robust debate, especially among the teachers and the universities, about the nature of the Lord's Supper. But from that point on, 1215, it became Roman Catholic dogma. So here you have a document of liberty, and you have a church law that ultimately would enslave the minds of the people of God to a false mysticism. So, dear ones, we come today to the pivotal reformation of worship and church in the 16th century Protestant movement. And really, thinking about what we studied last week, how could it be otherwise? If the Bible is buried beneath tradition and a dead language, if Christ is seen either exclusively as a judge who cannot be reached, he's afar off and just to be feared, or a man bitterly treated so as to elicit pity from you, if he's approachable only through the saints and your works of penitence, and if the gospel is anything other than the good news of Jesus Christ and his finished saving work on the cross, victorious for sinners to bring them to heaven, this is going to change both church and worship. In truth, church and worship had perpetuated the conditions in the 1500s of keeping the Bible away from uh, the, the masses and keeping Christ, as it were, afar off and his vicar here on earth and the gospel, the good news, the whole point of the Bible being twisted into something far from what it originally was given. We're looking at the reformation of the church tonight And we'll be looking then at worship this morning. I could easily have reversed this because there's, I I frankly confess, they are so closely connected when we think about it. It's hard for us to even conceptualize, much less grasp. But the church was not the people of the congregation in Luther's day. The church was the hierarchy, the leadership, the pope. The congregation was not the church. Believers were not the church. Luther and others had to restore the priesthood of all believers because of how priests had eclipsed the truth. And likewise, worship was not something the congregation did. They participated only in a minimal way. And what the priests and bishops and cardinals and popes did was ultimately what mattered. The church was accepted because of them, and you went along. And as we saw here at the center was this miracle of the Mass. Hierarchy and mysticism, those form both the skeleton and the sinew of the Roman Catholic experience. But a return to the Bible changed that for those who fled from this anti-Christian system. And so worship we take up first because of how vital This is. We are saved by the grace of God, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, to have fellowship with God, to be brought into union and communion with Him, and especially to adore Him. There is no reforming of the church without reforming holy worship. Man is made to worship God. Worship is central to the identity of man. We are lost without worship. We are saved for worship, and we are wired for worship. 
everyone you recognize, everyone worships. You, don't, you have never met a single human being that does not worship. You're going to, as Bob Dylan put it, you're going to serve somebody. When man fell into sin, he did not cease to be a worshiper. He ceased being a worshiper of God, but he did not cease being a worshiper and began to worship the creature instead of the creator. Worship comes from the old English word worthship, ascribing worth to one who we believe is worthy. And we read in our Bibles that there is only one that is worthy, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so ultimately everybody has as an object of adoration, an, an ultimate praise, an ultimate object before which they are attached and bow down. In ancient times, you could see them. They were gods of wood and of stone and of precious metals. In modern times, we have gotten more sophisticated, I think in large part because of the influence of the gospel. The gospel has helped us in our idolatry to worship more sophisticated, more spiritually, if you will. We worship idols of of power and of of wealth and and of history and of humanity and and fame. Very man-centered, very man-exalting, man the measure of all things. That's at the center. That's the idol of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And it still continues in postmodernism today where we are bowing down to absolute chance and relativism. Everybody worships something. What do you worship? Who do you worship? You see, just as important, how do you worship? Some worship aright and some worship awry. But everyone worships. Even the devil worships himself. He refused to bow the knee and was, uh, uh, fell away from God. So we are such worshipers that we don't even see how much we worship. We're meant for transcendence. We're meant for things above. And if we do not have God, we're going to try to make him up in the aggregate. We're going to try to get the creature to fill that vacuum, which is pure folly. So beginning our message here broadly, true worship begins with the true God. We know that the, 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 the first great commandment Jesus taught us is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what we're made for. We're made to have this fellowship with this God who has made us and to love him supremely with all of our might, with our whole being. We're to do so at all times, in all places, to the high purpose of his glory and not to our own glory. We talk rightly about man being made in the image of God. We don't just bear it, we are image bearers. And that brings man dignity. It brings man meaning. It brings us purpose. But really, we being made in the image of God is to give ourselves back to God that, that, that fits with us. We're not going to be at rest until that happens. We're right to say with Augustine that man's heart is restless until we find our rest in him. And you see, all of history could be put under that rubric. Man's history, man's philosophies, man's outlook on life is ruled by this restlessness, this godlessness that he's trying to desperately fill up in his own way, shape, or form. Look at these mad pursuits. Every generation trying to fill uh, what, um, 
What Pascal said is that God-sized hole in the heart with something less, with something that's incompetent to satisfy. And how they pursue it. And even when they do attain it, they, they are dissatisfied. But we forget and leave out the preface that St. Austin put in his famous dictum, which is, because God has made us for himself, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You are made to worship him and to worship him eternally. And it is all of life that is to be a worshipful service to him and to his glory. That was a hugely missing point in the pre-Reformation church. But with the gospel, the priesthood of all believers was restored. That the temple of God is not in Rome, in the Vatican, or any other place that is, that, that, uh, any other place than in the people of God themselves. We learned from our Bibles as we had them in our own language and began to read about what the Bible says about us, about the church, which we'll look at more fully tonight, that we are living stones unto Christ. Christ dwells within every believer by his Holy Spirit. And that Spirit has not only united us to Christ once for all, but he then oversees the communion we have with Jesus as our living head at all times. So worship, this ascribing worth and living to the glory of God, lifting, exalting, praising, thanking him, is not a Sunday-only thing. It's certainly not something that only the professionals, the elites, this caste system at the front does. It is something that every believer is called upon to do. You see, whatsoever you do, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever it is, do all to the glory of God. The idea that only professional Christians worshipped was exposed. This vital and personal relationship with the Lord all the time became the norm. And it continues throughout the, the remainder of history since then to be attacked. During the late 1600s and early 1700s, instead of this vital, warm, personal attachment to the living God, an externalism crept into the Protestant church that demanded a great awakening. That's what took place under Whitfield and the Wesleys and the others that preached so powerfully under the blessing of God. I recall the statement that Whitfield said to his fellow Anglicans who resisted his ministry would not allow them the use of their buildings. And he said to them, there's a difference between us. You believe only in a Christ who's outside of you. We believe as well that he is a Christ within us. It's a both and. So restoring that vital personal Christianity was absolutely necessary in what then came to be called evangelicalism. Believing the gospel with both sides of that gospel, as we've mentioned several times from this pulpit, the duplex gratia, the power within and the forgiveness without that is uh, central to the good news. Now, the problem with evangelicalism has been over the past 150 years and more pronounced more lately is the place of corporate worship becoming marginalized. Well, it's just me and Jesus. I'm a living stone. I've been saved. 
Why do I need the institutional church? Why do I need corporate worship? I worship God at home. I worship God in my devotions. I can just turn on religious programming and so forth. And this has become especially pronounced after the, uh, the pandemic that has hit us. People are not getting back into the groove of coming back to church and to uniting in communion with the saints. That's been the difficulty. Corporate worship has become marginalized. The institutional church has been demeaned, and the need of a teaching and leading ministry has been diminished. And we see that in the individualism in Western society, and America in particular. The church as a living, organic body has indeed spread its wings in magnificent ways. The whole church being engaged in the service of the Lord But the nuts and bolts of the church as an orderly and self-propagating body, that has been ignored to our detriment. But more on that tonight. See how you talk about worship and you start talking about the church. And you talk about the church and you start talking about worship. You can't really totally separate those two. But let's this bring us back then to the nature of corporate worship, what we are doing right now. The Lord calls us to worship him all the day long, but he gathers his people in congregations to serve him in holy worship. Worship is something God desires first. He is the one who takes the lead. Worship is not some idea that a group of Christian leaders somewhere back in history said, hey, this would be a great idea. No, God himself has instituted these things. This is lost on many. True worship does not begin in the heart of man. True worship begins in the heart of God. True worship descends from above before arising as it touches our heart to bring the adoration that God deserves to him. And this is why the imaginations of man cannot, cannot be the standard of worship. we, We should understand this. People want to respond They've been touched by God. They have been moved by the grace of God, the love of God, the generosity of the Lord. And you want to be spontaneous in these things, but that spontaneity needs to be directed and led by the word of God. That's the point. And that's where we run into passages in the Bible, like Matthew 15 and the parallel in Mark 7. Whenever man acts imaginatively, and brings that into worship, it corrupts that worship. Notice the language quoted from Isaiah 29 in verses 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. There's external worship. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. When man brings his own standard to worship, that's when we are in trouble. God is um, telling us here that automatically when we follow the dictates of man, whether they are our emotions and in our, um, uh, our experiences become the, the standard, or whether we're following some long-followed tradition that is contrary to Scripture, what is the principle? The principle arises from God himself. God is not only the center of worship then, He is the guide. He is the standard. As we prayed earlier, God is the audience and not we. 
God tells us how we are to approach him and and what it is that pleases him. Do you ever walk away from worship and you say, was God pleased with my worship today? Well, you can be certain that if you're worshiping in ways that are not commanded in Scripture, he's not too keen on that at all. If you're following just the precepts, the traditions, ideas that just arise from men, we're in trouble. That's what we find here. Our desires, our thoughts need to be brought into conformity with his thoughts, with his desires, and with his will. The problem is, is that you and I live in a world that wants us to be conformed to it. This world has its own worship forms, its own worship ways that says, here, think this way, follow this way, feel this way. And we need to battle that as part of this present evil age. That's really the true worship war that has been all throughout history. And you are still, Christian, all of us, are part of this present evil age. We still have our own desires. We still have our own likes and dislikes. And we're all somewhere along the spectrum of sanctification and growing in our worship and in our understanding. There is this itch. It's in the very marrow of our bones to do things in worship that have no biblical warrant. So on the one hand, we need to be careful students of what God wants, pure and simple. What does God want when I walk into his church? When I sit down in the pew, what does God want from me? What does he expect of me? How do I know what God wants? You see, well, there's, there's this book that tells us precisely what the Lord desires and how we need him to guide us and to hold our hands, as it were, while we are in his presence. Now, people think this tedious. Oh, we got to be chained to this book? Where is our creativity? Where's a, where are the arts to be brought in? Where's the ingenuity and so forth? Calvin had a great response to this. He, he talked about the holy, blinding presence of the Lord is like a labyrinth to our poor souls. It's impenetrable. And so he says, limping along, however slowly, in the Bible, is way more productive and safe than making great time and great speed in the wrong direction. And to boot, you're offending God along the way. Great point. I'd rather be following this thread slowly, even if I'm making little progress. At least I know I'm going in the right direction. As opposed to saying, man, I'm flooring it, and I'm just enjoying myself. But you're going contrary to the will and desires of your God. But there is this itch. It was found in Luther. Luther didn't entirely escape from it. He wanted to be able to bend over backwards, uh, to minister to the Catholics, and to keep the Catholics coming in, and to not offend them, and went too far, I think, in doing that. He allowed things in worship that were not commanded by God, and that's why you see something of a half-reformed worship in Lutheranism. You found the same thing in England. Queen Elizabeth would not allow the Reformation uh, to fully change the, uh, the established church. And the Puritans within that movement fought hard and nobly but failed because Elizabeth loved her pageantry, loved the beauty, loved the pomp and circumstances. She was addicted to it. She loved it. And so she protected it from reform. 
And the same thing comes down to our day. We have the same itch for making worship peppy and zippy and hippy as crowded into our sanctuaries. I remember when I was candidating at a congregation that eventually became my church in New York, and one of the families there met with us as I was, Nancy and I were there candidating. And they made this startling statement to me. It'll stick with me, I think, to the end. They said, we look at, at, at worship like a grand experiment. It's like the grand American experiment. We want to do that in the church. We want to experiment in worship. And I still remember my response. I was just aghast. I said, friend, experimenting before the face of God is a dangerous affair. That's not the place to experiment, you see. And we're like, whoa. It turned out to be the only ones who voted. Actually, they voted for me. Oddly enough, they said, you're the right guy for this church, but we're leaving. (laughs) I forgot about that. So, all corporate worship is to be regulated by the Lord himself. We must have a thus says the Lord for what we do and what we bring to him. If in the Old Testament you brought, if you brought a pig into worship, God would reject you, you see. All of this is regulated by the Lord. God brings enough peace to his foes and far-off neighbors, Martin Luther, He has brought greater pageantry and pomp in his own majesty above than we can ever hope to imagine. And we are entertained by higher and better fare than any earthly table could serve. We dine on angels' food, and instead of being satisfied with the things that matter and last, we turn to the husks of our own making. Nadab and Abihu learned the hard way what God thinks of bringing worship that is not commanded by the Lord. We praise God that the Lord is full of mercy and compassion. Imagine if God always just was bringing death to false worship. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. He does not want people to perish, but desires them to turn. But he has given instances where he shows very clearly his anger even at false worship, at worship that is foolish and ignorant. But how we worship then is so important. Your worship shapes you. Your worship fits you for heaven. Corporate worship is a heightened form of worship that brings us a step closer to where we're going to abide forever. While idol worship, as Psalm 115 tells us, it lessens us and dumbs us down. The author there says these idols, they have eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, hands but they can't do anything, got lips, they can't peep, they can't do anything, and those who worship them become like them. They become dumbed down. Those who worship blind idols become blind. Those who worship dumb idols begin to lose their ability to think right about God and the world and so forth. But true worship then is the opposite. It quickens us. It enlivens us. True worship brings us into the anteroom of heaven. Recall how Jesus taught the woman at the well. We have the words that he uses there at the top of your bulletin. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
True worship brings us in touch with our Father. That's the major theme of the new covenant, isn't it? Jesus brings forth as never before God as our Father. This Father who seeks some to worship Him. You know, you don't find often God seeking things. God doesn't need anything. But here He is seeking out certain worshipers. And so this whole category of worship now has this flavor of of warmth and love, a loving father, um, a providing father, a leading father. The issues of adoption and and a sun-centered quality to worship is found here in Christ's teaching there in Samaria. Worship is to be in the spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit, the light and power of whom is communicated to us. God himself in worship is with us. God himself in worship is for us. And that brings a liveliness. It brings a freshness to worship. That we all who are fearfully and wonderfully remade and remade for God are his temples. And he abides in us. And these lives are unique because of his power and his wisdom and his presence within us. Worship is Father-centered. Worship is in the Spirit and empowered by the Lord Himself. And worship is to be in truth. Now, this is a fascinating statement. It's been misunderstood. In John chapter 4, the context here is that, does not allow us to say what Jesus is saying here is He wants you to worship sincerely. He wants you to worship, as it were, from the heart. That's kind of like saying, I worship from the spirit. I worship into, listen, you can worship from the heart. You can worship sincerely and be still sincerely wrong and worshiping perversely. What Jesus, however, in this context is doing, he's not talking about the, the, the manner so much. He's talking about a place. Notice what Jesus had said leading up to this. Neither in Jerusalem nor here in Samaria but in spirit and in truth. It's a place. It's a locative use of this word. So it's not talking about truth versus falsehood or hypocrisy, which of course is rejected by Scripture. But he's talking about truth versus what is temporal or provisional. And this fits with the Gospel of John so beautifully. Um, He uses true and truth in this way. Jesus means the genuine as opposed to what is provisional or temporary. Jesus said, you had the bread from Moses, manna. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. He's not saying that Moses' bread was lying bread. He's saying it was provisional. It was temporary. I am the true and eternal bread. He uses the same thing as the true vine as opposed to being engrafted into Israel, which is likened to a vine. He is the true door. He is the true life. That means he is the genuine. He's the fulfillment. He's the real. And that's what we find here. Worship is about reality. Worship is about connecting with God. And worship, then here, speaks of um, of our uh, of having this heavenly reality with us. It brings us up to Christ who has come to earth and now has returned and brings us to that place that is above. So worship is, because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, a heavenly affair, a worship in the Jerusalem that is above. Above not in a disconnected upper registry or platonic upper room, but in a unified oneness with Jesus 
and his one church that stretches from heaven to earth. We don't have two churches, one in heaven and on earth. It's one church, and part of us is triumphant, and part of us is still in the military. So these three things, your worship is to be familial and warm because God is the center as your father. It is to be powerful. It is to be dynamic. If you find your worship is dull, oh, ask the Spirit to quicken your heart to help you. And, ha- and then this has got to be central, the reality, the heavenliness of what we do, of really connecting with the Lord. Is, what, is this what your, our communion is marked by in this local church? Is this the communion of our, of our churches across our denomination? Paul Tripp says, God has designed us to regularly gather together and remember the things that are worth living for. For all of us, things rise to levels of importance far beyond their true significance and begin to command the thoughts, motives, desires, choices, and allegiance of our hearts. As human beings made in God's image, we don't live by instinct. We are value-oriented, goal-oriented, purpose-oriented, and importance-oriented. Corporate worship reminds us of his power glory, and grace. It reminds us of the depths of our spiritual needs. It reminds us of the eternity that is to come. It reminds us of salvation, past, present, and future. And as it reminds us of these things, it clears up our values confusion once again, rescuing us from our wandering and fickle hearts and pointing us to the one who rightly commands our allegiance and in grace gives us every important thing that we would ever need to that end. God be praised for his worship. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercies to us today and thank you for reminding us of these important things that were rediscovered during the Reformation and continues, Lord, to be such an important part of the life of your people today. As one of the Puritans has put it, we know, Lord, that you love but three things in this world. You love your truth, you love your worship, and you love your people. And it's hard to say which you love the best. We know, Lord, that you love worship. You delight to meet with your people. Help us, Lord, to respond in kind. Help us delight to delight in your house, that our feet would, would, would as it were, dance as we come to your courts, as we uh, sit under your preaching, as we come to sing your praises, as we come to pray and to seek the face of our God who loves to reveal himself to us. Remind us, Lord, of your generosity, of your goodness, as well as of your greatness, and make us true worshipers of the living God. Oh, Lord, fill our hearts, we praise. We pray. Help us, Lord, to always enter into your courts with joy and grant to us this fellowship always. In Jesus' name. Amen.